You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast. Thank you for joining us on this Matt 28 Evening in Discipleship. I love your pastor. He's a good friend, uh, a, great bro- a great boss, and he's a good brother. I appreciate your invitation. Um, it is my desire, as is his, to see you better equipped. I and mean, that's the goal of the Great Commission, isn't it, that we make um, disciples uh, of our people, of our neighbors, friends, our children, all of them. And so um, the goal is to um, just t- kind of give you a better idea of um, r- really what's around us, okay? And, and uh, I, I don't think we could probably spend enough time covering all this. I'm really looking forward to the Q&A because I think that's really where you're liable to learn the most. Um, uh, certainly there's no way we can move through um, everything exhaust, exhaustively, uh, we could talk about denominational distinctives within the doctrine of salvation, or that is their soteriology. So we could just talk about salvation, or we could just talk about government and probably talk about five different ones with one of those categories and be so full you'd be drinking of a fire hydrant, right? Um, so to, tonight, to be honest, is probably as much about what we're not talking about as what we are. Um, the, the thing that you really need to uh, appreciate in good Christian maturity, and that's what we want you to do, is that there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of diversity in every single one of these. So when you hear me make a statement uh, that you think may sound absolute, uh, there is so much diversity of belief, even within one denomination, uh, that, that, that you would certainly be surprised uh, about sort of the results of finding what those people really believe. Um, for example, we'll be talking about Roman Catholicism tonight, and many of you have probably not heard of uh, the great uh, sort of uh, charismatic uh, revival within Catholicism, right? Or the revival within Catholicism, which is another faction, to sort of make its way back to the old Latin liturgy, right? And so there's just, there's so much to cover. Um, Adam has sort of given me, knowing the scope is large, um, just a few uh, things to look at. So first, we're going to be looking at uh, the Roman Catholic Church, number one. Number two, we're going to be looking at the Lutheran Church, which is very similar um, uh, actually, uh, to the Roman Catholic. Number three, we'll be looking at the Methodist Church and its uh, varieties. Uh, number four, we will be looking at the Church of God and the Assemblies of God together because they're functionally the same. Uh, and so we'll be uh, trying to find the differences and, and give you a good working definition there. And uh, number five, last but not least, is the Church of Christ, uh, also known as the Christian Church, uh, also known as the Disciples of Christ. You may know these as different denominations. They are all cut from the same cloth in church history. They were all founded by the same group of men called the Stone Campbell Movement. Uh, In particular, they are very, very strong here. So what you'll find as you study a map of our nation is that there are areas and geographies that are very strong in certain denominations. For example, if you go to the Ohio Valley, you'll find a lot of Roman Catholics. If you go to New England, you'll find a lot of Roman Catholics. Uh, Once you come to the South, you find a good garden variety of Methodists and Baptists that are the posterity of the circuit riders of Wesley and the like, right? But even if you sort of of take a, you know, a GPS or a Google Earth and you really 
get out of 30,000 30, feet and get, get lower, you'll find that even regionally there are uh, other emphasis in different places that you go. For example, I lived in Griffin, Georgia for seven years. And if you go to Griffin, you'll find that there's uh, a, a lot of charismatic denominations that they tend to be very heavy on um, there. Uh, Coweta County is, is particularly baptistically heavy. And as of late, uh, quite heavy on non-denominational church growth sort of styles, factions, etc. Um, what do you call it? Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, also here in South of Atlanta, particularly with Atlanta Christian College now being Point University, there are a lot of Christian churches, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ. We'll be talking all about that tonight. Um, you know, I would really like to pray for us before we get started here. I got about 30 minutes for us to get this done, and uh, we're going to need God's help. Okay, so here we go. Lord, we love you, and we just thank you so much for your grace um, to us. And certainly, God, we want to speak gracefully and graciously tonight about brothers and sisters with differences. And so, God, we pray that you would deliver us from the sin of pride and uh, that we could just speak clearly and that we'd appreciate um, nuance that is in the open hand. And at the same time, we would speak with deep and abiding conviction that which is true. Uh, help us to, God, love you and, and, and love your word and help us to love others as a result uh, of this evening and help us to be better equipped, not only in our mind with the information, but in our heart uh, with the Holy Spirit and love to engage people this week in the workplace and at home. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And he is indeed the Lord of the church. Okay, so uh, Roman Catholic distinctives are, but not limited to, uh, infant baptism, uh, centralized government, uh, continuationism, which believes that they actively believe in the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit at work uh, among them, the, the supernatural gifts, as it were. Um, that's official doctrine from the Holy See. They pray the rosary. That is a distinctive within Christian denominations. Uh, veneration of the saints. Uh, prayer of the saints. At one time, a documentary uh, by Bill Maher, who is a horribly blasphemous individual, um, did a, a um, sort of uh, commentary called Religious, and he went to the Vatican and did this massive sort of uh, survey and the survey found out that Jesus uh, among Roman Catholics was prayed to um, not number one, not number two, but number sixth most frequently in the church, right? So, which means that Roman Catholics are not talking to or through Jesus. Uh, they are talking to other saints. Um, uh, and of course, he, he found this and his atheism quite ridiculous, and he is right. Um, so, uh, all of, also a denominational distinctive is uh, celibate clergy. Um, so, uh, I, I think if if I have to make an issue with uh, parts of Roman Catholic theology, which is also called sacramentalism, uh, certainly we would have to start all the, all the things notwithstanding with the doctrine that says that Mary is the co-redeemer. This is certainly the most dangerous. Um, uh, I worked at Chick-fil-A with a young man who may still be there today. I don't know. Um, and he was a Roman Catholic. Um, 
he uh, married um, uh, his fiance was going to be a nun, but he talked her out of it. And so they, um, they, they wed and they have children now, but he's a contemporary Catholic worship leader in the Atlanta area. And when I brought to him um, the doctrine of Mary as co-redemptrix, he had no idea what I was talking about. He had no category for the fact that, uh, that it was official church doctrine that Mary was redeemer alongside of Jesus. Of course, this is a formidable problem. Uh, that's what we call heresy. That's not false doctrine. That's heresy. And, and there, there's a difference between heresy and false doctrine, really. Um, so, you know, we, we can call something a misguided teaching, and that's a category. We can call something a false doctrine, and that's a category. But when you get over here to the word heresy, and that's serious stuff, right? I think, I, I think where my heart goes out here uh, is that most Roman Catholics that I know don't know that that's official doctrine. Does that make sense? I just don't know. Um, and so just like biblical illiteracy and doctrinal and theological illiteracy is rampant in the church today of any sort, um, so, so goes with, with, with every denomination. There, there's, there's just a, a general ignorance around what they believe. And when you get down to it, you're like, oh, whoa, that's, that's a really big deal, right? Because we believe that Mary needed her son desperately to deliver her from sin and original sin and the penalty and guilt of sin and that she desperately needed the gospel that she was carrying inside of her and uh, eventually did. Uh, you uh, at this church are uh, non-denominational. If I had to put a rubber stamp on you, I'd probably say you were Reformed Baptist. I myself am an, am an Anglo-Baptisterian, uh, which means I am part Anglican, uh, part Presbyterian, and part um, uh, Baptist. Um, really uh, very, very little Anglican, have very little to do with them, other than the fact that we take uh, the Lord's table every week as a sign and a symbol um, to the gospel. Um, so, uh, you here at this church, along with most denominations, just hold the two ordinances and two sacraments, and those are called baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? And that's actually partly what constitutes you as a church, believe it or not. A lot of people say, well, we can just have uh, church with mom and dad and brother and sister, and, you know, we don't really need uh, a pastor or a constitution or any of these other things, but the truth is the, thing, the, the things that constitute a church are gathered people, the gathered people of God, governing according to God's word and administering the sacraments, which are also called ordinances. That's historically sort of the idea of what it means to be a church, even uh, sort of in our post-church culture today. Uh, to the contrary, the Roman Catholics don't have just two ordinances or two sacraments. They believe in seven. Uh, so the word sacrament also means means of grace. So the idea is when you partake in these, you are receiving grace or moving closer to salvation. Okay, They are, but not limited to ordination, marriage, baptism, Lord's Supper, confirmation, anointing of the sick, confession, which is also known as reconciliation and penance. And the reason that I say not limited to is some would argue that last rites would also be a means of grace or a sacrament. Um, so this is the catechism of the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it is only 750 pages long. It's a short read. You would really enjoy it. I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, there's a, uh, so anyway, um, <clears throat> Uh, at Ecclesia, uh, where I'm pastor, we walk through um, 
uh, the New City Catechism, which is a child of the Westminster and the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we're getting towards the end of it now. I think we're at week 48 of 52. I think this is our sixth year or sixth time to walk through it. It's just a, it's such a joy to go through. Well, this is their catechism, uh, uh, much like that one. It's their statement of faith, and it's nuanced, as you can tell. It's quite thorough. Um, anything that you need to know is, is um, certainly right here that holds them uh, distinctive. Um, of course, uh, we, we don't really believe in the priesthood as the Roman Catholic church would call it. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of the believer quite separate from, uh, the Roman church. And and we would cite the fact that the priesthood was destroyed along with the sacrificial system. When Titus, uh, walked in in 70 AD and leveled the temple to the ground there on the uh, Temple Mount, never to be erected again. Of course, that's not really what got rid of the priesthood, was a, you know, a war. It was Jesus' war on the cross 30 years earlier when the temple sort of was rent, right? And uh, it was all done. Uh, he waged war and said, I am prophet, priest, and king, and I'm inaugurating a new kingdom and a new priesthood of which you are all a part. Right, I mean, you have the ability to uh, pray and offer your body as a living sacrifice as a priest, as you are to do. So, um, what do Roman Catholics believe about salvation? Uh, they believe that uh, I think probably the most important thing is that you, um, uh, theologically, they would say uh, you attach yourself to the church via baptism, and it um, it is the church and the sacraments that save you period. Um, if you were to ask the average Roman Catholic parishioner, they may not be able to be that articulate to why they are in fact saved or how they're saved, but uh, a lot of it would have to do with the church, baptism, and, and a belonging to Christ. Most Roman Catholics that I talk to talk about being um, uh, Catholic with a capital C um, more than they talk about being a Christian, which is a problem. Um, a, a big one. Okay, um, we're going to leave uh, Roman Catholics wide open for the Q&A, and I'm sure we'll have plenty. Uh, we're going to have to move on. Uh, Lutherans, number two. Um, Lutheran distinctives uh, are infant baptism, centralized government, and they believe in the continuation, con- continuationists, or they, are, they believe in the supernatural um, gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, they are most like the Roman church, um, in as much as they still uh, adhere to a strong church calendar, they have uh, rituals, vestments, a liturgy, the whole nine yards. So it's it's very high church, as it were. Now, uh, the Lutheran Church is very very different. Um, you will find sort of the liberal faction of the Lutheran uh, Church is called the ELCA, and they're kind of the more liberal side of it. You'll, you'll find the Missouri Synod, which is kind of the more conservative uh, part of it uh, there as well. You'll find more high church Lutherans and, and what we call low church or evangelical Lutherans. Uh, basically, the, 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 the means to salvation are through what they call the efficacy of the sacraments, right? So uh, you're not really attaching yourself to the church uh, in, in order to get salvation, uh, but in terms of salvation by faith alone, that's just not a thing that Lutherans, all Lutherans, would necessarily espouse. Uh, many of Europe's Lutherans are so far gone 
um, that they, uh, many of them have actually co-signed a statement of salvation with the Roman Catholic Church, which obviously shows you kind of the direction uh, of which they have gone. Um, we uh, have Lutherans uh, today who are dear brothers and sisters of ours, we certainly shouldn't demonize them or presume upon their salvation. Uh, if they come and hold to the gospel and say, I believe in salvation by faith alone, then certainly we should give a nod and say, praise God, brother, right? I mean, the greatest Romans scholar that is alive today and for a generation is a guy by the name of Douglas Moo. He's a staunch Lutheran. Uh, if you've never read a commentary uh, on Romans by Luther, uh, by Luther, by Douglas Moo, in, in my opinion, you've, you've never lived, right? And so he's just phenomenal. He's, he's a great scholar. He's a dear brother, um, though we would believe, um, believe differently in some areas. Um, so how do Lutherans really differ from Roman Catholics may, may be the question. Uh, the role of the papacy, they would disagree there. Uh, the relationship between faith and works. Uh, the number of sacraments, and of course the books of the Bible is where they're going to differ. Uh, they do retain their liturgy, as I've said um, before. Uh, we have uh, Lutheran churches here locally that are quite evangelical, actually, um, and uh, meaning that when you walk into them, you would, uh, it, would it, it may feel like a, a normal, traditional church. Uh, and by normal, traditional church, I would not mean... Um, how do I say this sensitively, uh, sort of a contemporary feel, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but yeah, okay, moving along, because uh, we're supposed to be done in just a few minutes here. Uh, the Methodist Church. Uh, the Methodist Church was founded by John and Charles Wesley, uh, these brothers who are um, uh, just incredible revivalists, really, is, is, is what they were, staunch passion for Jesus Christ, uh, friends with the famous George Whitfield, who partook in the Great Awakening in this country. Um, and by their own admission, though quite Arminian in their theology, focusing on uh, the free will of man rather than the, salva- uh, than the sovereignty of God, uh, the brothers themselves at one point said, our theology is literally one hair's breadth away from Calvinism. So um, uh, certainly if you read uh, the hymns of Charles Wesley, uh, you will see just how influenced he was by George Whitfield's doctrine of salvation, particularly the doctrine of regeneration, which is a doctrine that we call being born again, right? Um, so if you read him, you go, whoa, I, I didn't, yeah, you don't sound like a you know normal Methodist, Charles. Uh, it's because he wasn't, right? Um, the the um, sort of uh, Methodist church of today is... Uh, what's well, a, a bit of an anomaly because they're it's sort of all over the the place and, and just like any church that you would go to the parishioners largely influence the climate of the church uh, which is why that there is a lot of diversity so for example um there are methodists there are wesleyans and those uh are different only by the fact that the united methodist church today uh, not the one that sort of Wesley and uh, John Wesley and his brother Charles founded, but the the church of today, you know, Methodists are quite socially liberal as compared to their Wesleyan counterparts. So if you would walk up to a Wesleyan church or someone say, hey, I'm Wesleyan, then uh, you would probably know they would be a little more socially conservative, but on the whole, they would believe pretty much the same. Uh, and in terms of a Methodist salvation, what that looks like is that grace is 
open for all saving grace and that uh, the gift as it's received in salvation uh, is finalized if works ahead to the end. They also believe in a doctrine called perfect sanctification, meaning that in this life you can live perfectly without sin. In my humble opinion, hopefully I'll be able to preach here again someday, that is a false doctrine, right? Um, anybody who has kids say, that's a false doctrine, right? Amen. Uh, right? So I mean, we're, we're selfish, and, and, and all kinds of uh, enterprises around us show us that every day. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, anything that is not of faith is sin, right? So certainly we don't, we don't believe this. Now, if we rewind on the history, it has a really interesting history about why United Methodists uh, and Wesleyans broke, uh, and it actually had to do with slavery. Um, uh, after the Civil War, um, these, uh, these factions uh, really sort of split because of the issue of slavery. Uh, the United Methodist Church, uh, historically, was not willing to condemn slavery. And Wesleyans said it needs to be absolutely abolished because it's an evil institution. And that's sort of where they, they went their ways. Um, uh, and that was a long time ago. Um, of course, um, today they are quite different. Uh, just to give you a good idea of just how far the United Methodist Church uh, is today, they are uh, what we refer to as accepting and affirming to uh, the LGBT community. If you want to know more about that, when we're not in the mixed company of young ears, I'll be glad to give you a primer on the side. Um, so uh, a distinctive of Methodist Church is that uh, they also practice infant baptism. They do not believe in the perseverance of the saints, or that is to say uh, that the Lord could um, hold your salvation in trust. Uh, number four is the church of God and the assemblies of God. Uh, the church of God and the assemblies of God are uh, different denominations, a- admittedly, but they're really the same. They're so alike, they actually many oftentimes share ministers. Uh, they are charismatic in nature. Uh, they're children of the Azusa Street uh, revival on the West Coast. And really the only difference between the, the two, um, when you look at them square in the eye, is that they're governments. So Assemblies of God are locally governed by the local church uh, and whatever sort of you know government that they would put in place, right? I mean, practically, they're congregationalists, though functionally, most of the time, they're staff-run, which, um, in, in my opinion, is, is, is not a proper church government uh, of congregationalism, is it? It's, a, it's, it's different. Uh, whereas Church of God actually has a centralized government, they have a regional and or state overseer whereby that individual actually appoints pastors, calls the shots, um, sort of moves things um, in a direction where he feels best, much like a presbytery would, um, which is actually what the United Methodist Church does as well. Um, these churches would not have a liturgy or a church calendar, no Lent, nothing like that. Um, they would espouse to salvation by grace through faith alone. Uh, they would fall uh, probably along a baptistic line whereby, uh, you know, you come to faith in Christ through faith and repentance, though the end game in the assemblies of God and the church of God is quite different. 
uh, in as much as they believe that that salvation must uh, be met with good works uh, or it's going to be lost. So um, the whole idea of Jesus holding you fast uh, through your sin um, would be foreign to them, okay? Um, uh, Last but not least, number five, uh, and I know I'm leaving a lot of open-ended room, and I'm hoping we're going to catch that in our Q&A, is is the Christian church. So the Stone-Campbell movement started in the uh, mid-1800s, uh, there was a, there were Presbyterians, both of these men actually, Stone and Campbell, were both Presbyterians uh, living in the Ohio and Kentucky area. Um, they were um, staunch Presbyterians, but they were a part of a Presbyterian presbytery that could not get along. They got sick and tired of the infighting, and they, eight churches in this presbytery, left. Presbyterianism altogether. Uh, Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, quite staunchly. And started their own uh, sort of denomination. As a matter of fact, uh, it wasn't really called Disciples of Christ or Church of Christ or Christian Church at the beginning. They referred to themselves actually as non-denominational. And their focus was this, no creed but Christ. They wanted to get back to the Bible. They, they really disagreed with the Presbyterians' idea uh, of uh, the Westminster Catechism. Um, which I love, by the way, and think you should teach to your children. Right? I think it's wonderful, um, uh, w- w- with with you know some exceptions with credo baptism in there because I'm a Reformed Baptist. Um, but yeah, they they, they 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 wanted no creed but Christ. That was kind of the idea, and they wanted to go back to the scriptures. Well, when they went back to the scriptures, they put off the councils, put off the creeds, put off the catechism, and they started reading with the vernacular of the New Testament. They saw a lot of like washing of regeneration and things like this, and what this did is moved them towards an idea where they believed that baptism, water baptism, saved you. And we call it today baptismal regeneration. If you talk to a a Christian church minister, they will not probably agree to that terminology. They'll probably use something like baptismal forgiveness. Uh, and so what they say is that the Bible talks far too much about repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins for us to throw water baptism out, right? And, of course, we would cite many, many places in the New Testament as well as the unity of the Bible to say that no such sacrament was ever meant to save man, right? Uh, through Pauline uh, theology, Peter's theology, and the whole of the New Testament record, uh, we just don't find it consistent. Stone and Campbell did not, uh, and what emerged was several different denominations. Um, uh, Stone emerged with his church intact, and, and the non-denominational church turned into a church of Christ, which you know today. They, they are everywhere. They are most known for not having music, and they believe that baptism with faith and repentance saves you, but you must be water baptized. Um, the Christian church, which is very, 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 very popular in this area, as well as the disciples of Christ, are really the exact same, except they don't throw in uh, the whole music thing, right? So they're, uh, they would I- integrate music into their worship services and liturgy just fine, uh, but they would also say that salvation is by faith uh, uh, and repentance along with water baptism. That's kind of where that would go. Now, you and I, um, we believe in salvation by grace through faith alone. 
right? And, and we put this up here so that you can see this is Tim Challies. I don't know if anybody follows Tim Challies. He's a Canadian um, uh, reformed individual here. And this is basic. Uh, the Ordo Salutis is Latin for order of salvation, okay? And most every denomination has an Ordo Salutis or how they view salvation. And maybe a really good homework assignment for you would be able to go, if, if there's a one particular denomination that you have a question about, that you could just go home and type in the Latin Ordo Salutis, bring it up so that you can see what this looks like, right? So w- what we believe is that there's this particular calling, right, that, that, that God provides uh, to the individual. And in other words, when I, I was converted when I was 19, I didn't wake up in the morning in my dorm room as a sophomore in college and said, by golly, I'm going to save myself today. That didn't happen, right? So as Christians, we believe with Jonathan Edwards when he says, the only thing I contributed to my salvation was the sin that made it necessary, right? That great theologian. Um, and so what that means is that uh, here, watch, this is, what, this is what Edwards meant. We are converted um, when we believe and repent. We willingly respond to the gospel call, repenting of sin and placing faith in Christ for salvation. But as Reformed Baptists, if you're a Reformed Baptist, and, and, and believe me, even within Ecclesia, we are like, we're like kind of Reformed Baptist, some days really Reformed Baptist, others not so much, others outright Presbyterians, right, um, with their Scottish bagpipes. <laughs> anyway, uh, so we believe that regeneration, that term means born again, precedes conversion, as would Chalice. okay? And of course, what you have to do is kind of figure out what that means. What we agree with is that Martin Luther King Jr., uh, for all of his uh, wonderful things that he did and also sins, he said this wonderful thing, God did not come to make bad men good, he came to make dead men alive. And so when we think that when you were dead in your sin, that you can't wake up from death to save yourself, that you are given a new heart in regeneration, and with a new heart, you believe. And with a new heart, you repent. And by that new heart, um, right, with that new heart, Jesus gives you the righteousness of Christ, right, Um, and imputes to you Jesus's righteousness. You're thereby adopted into the family of God, given full family rights, sanctified, and you become looking more like Jesus every day, persevering, and finally you will die, and God will uh, save your body finally and give you a new one. Okay, okay. I have given Adam four minutes to discuss non-denominationalism, which is plenty of time. Um, these are the denominations that we hadn't, have not discussed tonight that we probably should have if we had another 48 hours. Uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, uh, the Southern Baptist Church, Independent and Missionary Baptist Churches and the Landmark Movement, the United Pentecostal Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, including but not limited to Greek, Russian, Romanian, Ethiop- Ethiopian, Armenian, Coptic, which is Egyptian, uh, the Presbyterian Church, um, which we sort of touched on a bit, right? Uh, the Episcopalian Church was the Anglican Church in America, as well as the Anglican Church. Uh, the AME Church is the African uh, Methodist Episcopal Church, and the Church of the Nazarene, which is very similar to Methodist. Okay, I'm out of here. Come on, this way. All right, and that was that was really good. That was a really good summary of um, of all those, and we'll come back and maybe summarize those once again before we do kind of a Q&A. Um, I wanted to touch just briefly on uh, non-denominational churches and briefly because they're almost impossible to really talk about because they're every single one of them going to be very different. 
very different. And they're probably potentially some of the most dangerous because when you align yourself with a denomination, you at least are giving off some idea to other people. Here's probably what you're going to find out here from our church. Like, here's what we're going to probably believe. So if you label yourself as a Methodist church, as Ryan said, here's some things you should expect to find at a Methodist church. Here's some things you would expect to find at a Lutheran church or at a um, Christian church or at a Reformed Baptist church. Um, A non-denominational church distances itself from the the preconceived ideas that come with denominations, and sometimes it's a good thing. I mean, we're obviously non-denominational here. John MacArthur's church is a non-denominational church. Um, There are really good non-denominational churches. Um, Faith Bible Church is is considered a non-denominational church. Um, But then there's other churches that are not very good, and and they're they're labeled that non-denominational church because, and, and Ryan and I have talked about this before, there's certainly a trend right now where anybody and everybody feels qualified to start a church, right? Like if I have a group of friends and if I've got a bit of a charismatic personality and I'm a good speaker, I can probably get a church going in our culture. Um, if I've got a good worship leader and I've got a charismatic ability to speak and teach and people like to hear me, I can probably call it a church and start it and just label it non-denominational. That's, that's a dangerous thing. It used to be you had to go off to Bible school to even get an ear with people about being a pastor, and that's just not the case anymore. I mean, I know way too many people in the youth group, youth speaking movement that have never never darkened the doorstep of a Bible school, like have no theological training, and yet they can, they can gather an audience but just by saying, hey, I'm speaking this night of the week. Um, so non-denominational is very difficult to interact with because you really have no basis to start from. And there's a lot of non-denominational churches in this area, and they usually have uh, even names that it, it really even makes it hard to even know what they believe. When we chose our name, we wanted to even communicate some aspects of what we believe. We weren't going to align with a denomination right now, but even with our name of Sovereign Hope Church, Oftentimes, people that come and visit us say, hey, we, we kind of thought you guys were probably more Reformed Baptist based on your name. Um, there's a church in Coweta County called Real Church, right? You may have heard of it. Like, I mean, you get that name, and you're like, man, I have no idea what I'm getting here. Like, and so you have to really start digging into their website, digging into their beliefs to even try to figure out what it is they believe. And in my experience, and Terry sent me a church in Noonan called Summit Church. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this. It's a part of the Church of the Highlands from Birmingham. And Terry, I'm looking at it a little bit more just to try to kind of understand exactly what's going on there. Um, but even when you look at those type of churches and their beliefs and their, their statements of faith, sometimes it's hard to even find anything there because it can be very vague. Oftentimes because they don't want to necessarily reveal exactly what they are. They want you to come experience it. Like, come be a part of us. We're not going to necessarily be real dogmatic about some of the things that we believe. You'll just have to kind of come figure it out and find it out. Um, those are the hardest to deal with. Um, we'd certainly be willing to, to kind of help you if you're confused about a non-denominational church that maybe you have a friend going to, you're trying to figure out how do I speak to this person because they're so different. They're just so different. It's really hard to know how do we, how do we address specific ones. I'd be really cautious of them. Um, and I say that as a non-denominational pastor, right? Like I would be very cautious of them just because oftentimes they're not always sure, I think, sometimes of what they believe about some of these key things. Um, so yeah, just, I mean, we can, we can talk more about non-denominationalism in the Q&A, um, but wanted to just kind of let you know, I mean, there's a lot of them in this area. 
Oftentimes they're started by people who haven't had a ton of theological training. Um, and so we definitely want to be very cautious when we talk with people that are from him to really kind of delve in what do they believe about the gospel? What do they believe about salvation? Just like Ryan said, it really all starts with that for all of these discussion points with other denominations, right? I mean, I would say from the Roman Catholic standpoint, that is probably the one, and I took some notes as you were talking, that is probably the one that we get the most parental concerns about when Ryan or Tyson are teaching in the classroom, when we have uh, we, we have a good bit of Catholic families that are coming to Trinity now. Those are usually the parents that I hear from. Kid comes home, says something. Mom and dad are like, that's not what our church believes. And they're emailing me saying, hey, is your Bible teacher saying this? Because that contradicts what our church says. And we're supposed to be pretty denominationally friendly in our teaching. Most of the parents don't ever have any concerns. So we've got Lutherans and Methodists and Church of God and Assembly of God. It's typically the Catholic parents that identify the most concerns with what we teach. And I would say that's probably because typically when I hear that somebody goes to a Catholic church, I I automatically start to assume they're probably not a believer. They probably do not accept the gospel. Because typically those who go to Catholic churches either do not know what the Catholic church believes, which probably means they don't know the gospel. They're just a church goer, a church attender. They were raised to go to church. Because if they do know what the Catholic church believes, they probably don't accept the gospel based on how the Catholic church in in that book would really hold to what it means to be saved. So I'm always very, very cautious with someone who labels himself as a Catholic because I'm typically going to lean towards, man, they probably don't understand the gospel. I'm not going to be real dogmatic about that because, man, you can can certainly have people who go to a Catholic church and and they know the gospel. Maybe they they grew up in a different church. Their spouse wants to go to a Catholic church and maybe they yield to that. So I would never say anybody that goes to a Catholic church is not a believer. Anybody that calls themselves a Catholic cannot be a Christian. But I'm going to say more often than not, there probably is a misunderstanding of the gospel. Um, when it comes to the Lutheran church, I think you kind of hit on this. Um, probably less of a focus on works. I think you even see that in, in some of Martin Luther's concerns with the book of James. Um, they're going to be potentially very gospel-minded. You mentioned Douglas Moo, and so we certainly would never say, if you're a Lutheran, you can't be a believer Um, But I think the point of conversation is to just really talk about the relationship of faith and works. And certainly the book of James says, and you can't have empty faith that doesn't lead to a changed lifestyle. Like it's certainly a part of salvation that that God saves us for good works. He he ordained that to be a part of our salvation. Whereas you got on the other side, the the Methodists who are going to overemphasize the works, right? Like they're going to say, man, you you have to have these to a point that, man, we'll call you not a Christian if you don't. And that's, that's a tough that's a tough line to draw there, too. Um, so they're kind of real similar, but then opposites on those streams. One is more more worky, and one is less worky um, when it comes to the relationship between faith and works. Church of God, Assembly of God, like you said, um, probably the biggest confusion from, from them is the, the perseverance of the saints and the loss of salvation. I know I grew up with some kids that went to Church of God uh, churches, and, and we talked about that a lot, just the idea that they believed in um, the fact that you could lose your salvation. I think it's I think when, when we hear that, we probably freak out a little bit, and it's like, oh, no, like, that's a horrible doctrine. Oftentimes, if you really dialogue with somebody who believes that a saint could lose their salvation, we, we say the same things. We're saying the same things. What we're saying is, is that you can't have somebody who 
lives egregiously from what the, what the scriptures have to say. Like they can't live like the book of Revelation calls a non-believer and still be a believer. So the person who believes you can lose your salvation, their fear is that somebody will call themselves a Christian and say they believe the gospel and live like the world. And they're going to say, man, they lost their salvation. We're going to say they just never had salvation, right? So oftentimes we're both protecting against the same thing. We're not going to let somebody call themselves a Christian and live just like the world. How we get to that conclusion is different. One would say you lose it. One would say you never had it. Now, one's right and one's wrong. Um, and I believe we're right in the sense that you don't lose your salvation. You never had it. But again, I don't think you have to dismiss them and burn them at the stake because they believe you can lose your salvation. I think we're trying to say the same thing, that you can't call yourself a believer, a, a follower of Jesus, and then not follow him. But Assemblies of God, Church of God, certainly heavy charismatic, but man, we go, to, we go to school with a lot of Assemblies of God people. I mean, we work alongside of them. My boss is an Assembly of God pastor. Um, I've never been overly concerned about anything that I've heard him say. Um, I think he loves Jesus. I, I think he believes the gospel. I think he's a believer. I think we'll be worshiping in heaven one day, and I think at that point we'll know who was right and who was wrong about some of our doctrinal differences. But overall, I think you certainly have believers in the Church of God, Assembly of God movement. Um, just want to be cautious in talking about like what it means to be saved and, and how that, again, that relationship of, of works is. And then as Ryan mentioned, the Christian church being heavy on baptismal regeneration, attaching the, the baptism piece to that. And that's certainly a concern. And, and again, you may interact with people that go to Christian churches that, that have no idea that that's believed. I know we have a family member who was going to a Christian church for a while, started to pick up on that. Their kid came home concerned because he was hearing it in Sunday school, that, that he needed to be baptized in order to be saved. And he got really concerned, I think, about his brother, his brother who had not been baptized and was really freaking out about, I don't want my brother to go to hell. We need to baptize him. And so at that point, our relative said, eh, we need to go to a different church. Like, we don't believe that doctrine. And so it is certainly there and present in the Christian church, even if people we know there don't readily realize that, it's certainly being taught in the Christian church and certainly something to be aware of. I would just tag on to what you said about the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and some of those other churches that are real similar, I think one thing that I always try to listen out for, especially in interviews with families at Trinity, is how much emphasis they put on like confirmation classes. Because I know a lot of our kids at Trinity believe their salvation is tied to completing this confirmation class because it's kind of a big to deal. And I don't know if you want to, if you could share a little bit in the Q&A to just to kind of kick us off as to what actually takes place in a confirmation class. But it's kind of a class that you are now considered educated about that church's belief system, and they, they essentially pronounce you as a Christian for graduating and kind of completing that class. And, and some people really hold on to that. It's kind of the sinner's prayer that we hear a lot in the Baptist, Baptist church as to, oh, I, say to, I said a prayer when I was a kid. Well, that doesn't make you a Christian necessarily, right? A lot of times people coming out of these churches will say, I, I did confirmation class, and that's kind of their sinner's prayer. Hey, because I did that, I'm a Christian. So that's certainly a point of dialogue, especially with somebody coming out of the Catholic Church and some of the more liturgical churches that, that maybe have those confirmation classes. I think that's something to kind of listen out for. Do they put too much emphasis on a, what's really a discipleship-type class, but when they complete it, they kind of think of it in terms of, I'm now considered a believer. Um, so maybe you can talk just a little bit about that, and then we'll go right into the Q&A. So, yeah, the confirmation classes um, actually... Uh, are littered across the denominational spectrum. Uh, you'll find confirmation classes in Methodism, 
thank you, uh, Methodism, uh, Anglicanism, uh, in Episcopalian churches, Roman Catholic churches, and just like the denomination is different, um, so is the intention of the confirmation. So within the Roman Catholic Church, confirmation is actually a sacrament. It's actually one of the seven sacraments. It's actually a means of grace. And so, um, but as long as you're attached in Roman Catholicism, as long as you're attaching yourself to the church, which we think is a surrogate Christ, then that's okay, right? So uh, salvation by the church rather than salvation by Christ. Um, so it's like, well, church says confirmation, so we do confirmation. That's kind of the idea. Um, as far as um, other churches go, uh, I think other churches maybe have more of a balanced view of confirmation, and that is to say they they've um, they raise their children to understand the gospel, right? And uh, confirmation is kind of a, a rite of passage. We, we, we want to make sure that our children around age 12, 13, or 14 are believers. And we're going to put them under the spiritual authority and the tutelage of these, these men so that they can sort of direct and affirm what is already true. Okay, uh, some may have that opinion of confirmation, which sounds okay, right? And then others may be kind of a middle ground between those two, and saying sort of the, you know the, the confirmation uh, plays a, a massive role, uh, sort of in the regeneration process, which is a problem. Uh, true point here: um, something that Christian Church Disciples of Christ and Church of Christ have in common is with Roman Catholics is that they all believe in baptismal regeneration because Roman Catholics believe that when children are baptized, they are attached to the church. Um, and so they, they, as, as long as you're attached to the church, you, you're, you're good to go. So that's kind of the idea. All right. Um, questions that you guys might have that we could try to help answer. And I wanted to clarify the, the church in Calway, the real church. I know the pastor there. I think he loves Jesus. Um, so I didn't want anybody to think that, man, when you see a sign for a real church, that that's, uh, that should be a cause for concern. Like, I think that guy loves Jesus a lot. And, um, yeah, that's just the first one that I thought of because I think the name's kind of – it's just you just like, what, is, what does that mean, real church? But questions you might have? Seminarians aren't allowed to ask questions, Josh. I'm sorry. <laughs> Could you explain uh, either or both uh, biblically – and historically, why we would reject what the Roman Catholics would call the Deuterocanonical books and we would call the Apocryphal books. Okay, so um, the, the, the question uh, translated is... Uh, <laughs> thank you, Josh. Uh, the question translated is, why, you know, why, why do we hold to the books of the Bible that we hold to the books of the Bible? Uh, I think it is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church actually has the largest Bible in the world. That is to say, they are the denomination that has the most books in it because they just not rejected any of them. They all brought them in. Um, and, then, and then why have we gotten to where we've gotten? Um, and, and generally, I mean, there's several criterion by which we think that these books are what they are. When we go to the oldest manuscripts in the world at the British Library, the Codex, uh, Sinaiticus and the Codex, um, Alexandrinus, these are, those are fancy words for very, 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 very old complete New Testaments, okay, the dating to 300 and 400 AD, and they have um, uh, the, the biblical record in them, right, also Council of Nicaea, uh, if you've ever heard of um, 
uh, the great saint of God, they, they called him uh, the Black Dwarf, Athanasius, who was the secretary of uh, the get-together. They affirmed the canon of Scripture. They didn't say these are the books and these are not the books. They just affirmed what all the churches uh, uh, in the Mediterranean were already using and just said, these are, these are holy writ, you know. Um, and so that's I think that's probably the best uh, way that I can say, and, and so there's a lot of criteria uh, that books are scriptural, what we call scriptural, and the ones that are not. Uh, do, do they have unity of the Bible? Do they have, you know, uh, apostolic authorship? Um, and there are a few other criteria that we, we could look at to say you know, this is the difference between why we use those books and and why we don't. And of course, what's really interesting is just like a child, as soon as the church says you can't have that book, then the gospel of Philip immediately becomes a bestseller, right? It's just boom, it's just pouring off the shelves because it's like, don't touch that. And everybody's like, and they read it, right? Uh, But yeah, that's kind of the idea, which is not a sufficient answer, I'm sure for you, it's seminarian, but I'm just giving you a hard time. Uh, yeah, let me just say this, it, it just in the spirit of um, what Adam has said, you know, we've just read a book as a staff called Graciousness by John Crotz, his local pastor here in the area. Um, and, and the book really highlights the fact that, you know, what you say is incredibly important, but how you say it is also very important. Let me just say that, um, you know, I, 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 I love brothers and sisters who are of different denominations. Does that make sense? Um, so I was raised missionary Baptist, educated Southern Baptist. Um, my terminal degree was at an interdenominational school. My wife works for an interdenominational mission board. We love the church. We really do. Um, and, and so while I'm very convicted about what I believe and how I believe it and that there are some denominational particulars that I will hold to, I, I, I love the church that Christ died for and, and certainly um, uh, appreciate uh, differences that are there and are more than willing to dialogue about some of those uh, and just appreciate the spirit in which you've done it. So, Other questions? Maybe questions about specific churches um, in the area. Yeah, I've, I've got one. The uh, Roman Catholic Church, if I understand correctly, they believe in justification by faith and works. I wasn't tracking with with. You, with Brian, what you said, or with Adam, what you were saying about the Lutheran Church, how how are, are they different from each other? Or are they the, basically the same um, in their justification beliefs? Or what are the differences there? So the Lutheran Church of the Reformation is very different from the Lutheran Church of today. Uh, the Lutheran Church of Europe would be completely unrecognizable to Luther, Luther's eyes. He wouldn't even know who they were. Uh, they, they may have been, you know, people selling at, at market. They wouldn't know, right? Um, but as far as what, what they believe today, um, most Lutherans uh, believe that faith plays a role in salvation. Uh, the taking of the sacraments are quite important, and works has been infused within their doctrine to play a part as a salvific role of salvation. Does that make sense? Now, here's the thing. Not all Lutherans believe that, okay? And it's like, how could the children of Luther have come so far, right? Does that make sense? Because that seems like the complete opposite of what Luther was going to bat for. Um, and I don't, I don't have the answer to that. Uh, you know, it's salvation history. It's, it's, it's the way it panned out. Um, 
But, I, you know, I would be careful when you talk to Lutherans because they're, they're going to be saying different things at different times. Like we said before, there are more conservative factions of Lutheranism, particularly if you ask someone, are you from the Missouri Synod? They're going to be more conservative. Um, uh, there's also a Wisconsin, very, very conservative Wisconsin Lutheran faction as well. And then there's the more liberal uh, Lutherans, uh, which is the evangelical um, Lutherans, I forget the acrostic right off the top of my head. So I, I don't know if that gets down to it. Um, but yes, so it's it, it, it's a fusion of it all. It's sort of uh, faith, works, sacraments, um, all of it. And it just kind of comes comes together. Yep. Um, you were saying that the Catholics have their own Bible, the Ethiopian Church have their own Bible. We have a Bible. How many different Bibles are there floating around between all these different churches? a great question. I'll, I'll let you answer. That. Uh, so, uh, so the 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 the, uh, I mean, there are many English translations of the Bible. They all come from the ancient Greek, and the New Testament, and the Hebrew, um, and. Uh, it is it is our job as scholars without a proper dictionary to translate that work right and so um, uh, th- there there are you know different um, th- there are are different yeah, you give this to me for a reason didn't you yeah. um, there th- there there are different Bibles there are different English Bibles floating around okay but ninety nine percent of the English Bibles floating around are Protestant. English Bibles, okay? Uh, they would not have things in the Apocrypha or, or things like that in them. Uh, down through the ages, people have been uh, sort of convinced that these books belong and these be- these books don't belong. And of course, man is not in a place to make those decisions, right? Um, uh, you know, we know that Scripture is what it is by Scripture, and that is circular reasoning, but it works. So, for example, we know that Paul, you know, uh, uh, Romans through Philemon, which are Paul's letters, are scripture because in First Peter chapter three verse sixteen, when Peter is writing his letter uh, to the people of ancient or modern Turkey, Asia Minor, he says he equates Paul's letters with scriptures because he says men are distorting what Peter says as they are other scriptures. So he puts it on the same level, right? So that's part of the reason of of what we, why we know what what the Bible is. Um, we believe that there's 66 books in it, right? Um, and that, that that is what it is. No, you know, why are there other Bibles that are floating around with extra books? Uh, you, you know, why didn't we include other books that are in? They don't seem to have the same theme. Like if, if not only do they not meet the criteria historically, not only did believers in 325 at the Council of Nicaea say this is not scripture, but when you read them, they don't make any theological sense compared to the other scriptures. So when you read the Jesus of the Gospels uh, and you read maybe some intertestamental literature that makes bigger and different Bibles, you find, oh, well, yeah, this is this is clearly um, this is a false account, probably written hundreds of years after Christ, um, rather than shortly after after his birth. After maybe his death, define what we what we're even saying when we mean, when we say the apocrypha. For okay, those that haven't heard that. Term. Yeah, so the word apocrypha is intertestamental literature, or um, so it's just extra books in the Bible besides the twenty-seven of the New Testament, the thirty-nine of the of, of the Old, and the sixty-six that comprise the whole. 
Um, so that that's what the apocrypha is. And really, there's only two denominations that I know of that even espouse that these are true. One is Roman Catholic, and the two, uh, the other is Eastern Orthodox churches. But even they disagree on the amount. Hence, the Ethiopian comment. So, by intertestamental, you mean written between Old Testament and New Testament? Correct. Yeah, uh, but but then there are also what we call Gnostic Gospels, you know, things that are written after the life of Jesus um, that are extra things that, you know. So there's about 400 years between Malachi and, and Matthew and when those books were written and then the, the Apocrypha books, a lot of them were written in between that time, whereas we would say there was a, a 400 years of silence as far as God's word being contained in the canon. I follow up. If, if, if under the, I guess, the lens of it not being inspired, are they still of value for teaching us anything about that period of time? Is there anything of value to gain from them? You know, th- there are books. Um, one in particular is the um, Epistle of Barnabas is one book, and another one is called The Shepherd of Hermas, and they are found as being read with other New Testament books around that time. Um, books like this that are not sort of out in left field, right? Bale and the Dragon, et cetera, et cetera. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the like. Things that sound like their scripture and they also were found. So, for example, if you go to um, some of these older Bibles that are found, you'll find sort of the Shepherd of Hermes is attached to one of the manuscripts, right? And what we say about those, Tyson, is that they are not inspired, but they are... Um, that they're not necessarily wrong. So we wouldn't call them authoritative, but we would call them helpful for Christian life, right? So we, we find nothing wrong with them. They're just not inspired. They're not the Bible. doesn't mean they're, they're not useful, right? Um, but they're certainly not scripture. So they, they can be helpful is, 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 is what I would say. Potential if someone 200 years from now dug up a Bible from this time and it was sitting next to Francis Chan's crazy love, right? Like you've got right. inspired scripture, yeah. You've got exactly. some helpful literature next yeah. to it, but they are they are different. They are. They are different. They are. But you might would find those two Absolutely. together. Certainly. Yeah. And, and, of course, I mean, the wonderful thing about Scripture is that the more we dig in archaeology, even the less faith that you have to have that the Bible is the Bible. So we went to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we found, uh, you know, literally a thousand-year-old copy of complete of the book of Isaiah. It's just phenomenal, right? It's the same exact copy of Isaiah that we have today. And the, the more the more we dig and the more we find, the more assurance we have that, hey, this is the real thing. I mean, li- there are, I think, 24,000 copies of ancient manuscripts before 1000 AD. I mean, it's just, or maybe it's before... I forget the date. It's very, very early. And, and it's just, it's, it's like you don't even have to, you don't have to wonder anymore because they're all so very close together uh, about what they're espousing, about what they're declaring, about what they're saying is true, that you, you really can put great faith in the credibility and the reliability of the Bible. Um, and more than this, we believe in such a great God that would not leave his people without a word because it's in his very character. Does that make sense? We, we serve a good and gracious God. Um, I have a coworker who claims to be Catholic, and um, he and I have been talking a lot recently about just what does a Christian life look like and what are maybe ways that we could, could live just in order to experience the fullness of life that Christ wants us to have. Um, and maybe that's the way that I'm phrasing it and not the way that he would be phrasing it. But how, maybe what are some of the ways that I could interact with him and have conversations with him uh, just to lead him more towards like a Jesus-centered gospel life? 
Have you had much dialogue about what he believes in regards to attending the Catholic Church? That's where I would start is, you know, what, what do you think are some distinct beliefs of your church and potentially help that person to understand if they don't what their church actually does believe? Because you want to differentiate between what does this person believe and what does the church believe because they may not be the same. Um, that's where you potentially could have a, a person going to a Catholic church and be a Christian because they don't believe what that church actually believes. And so that's, that's where you really have to kind of, and that's true for any of these, right? Like you don't just assume that somebody that goes to a Lutheran church believes what we're telling you Lutheran churches teach. They may not. Um, I find that to be true a lot of times at Trinity with some of the people that I interact with. Um, so I would, I would really start by, anytime, I think you come across less argumentative anytime you can be very inquisitive in asking somebody, give them the opportunity to share, give them the opportunity to talk, give them the opportunity to state what it is they believe. Don't impose beliefs upon them that they may not have just because they go to that church. That w- that's where I would start, and then pending the response that, that that person has would then lead me to step two as to how I'm going to address those beliefs. I don't know if... Yeah, I mean, I, I would just add here that, uh, and piggyback that, it's so very important for you to know what he believes and dig down deep because with big, large religions, I mean, there are one, one billion people in the Catholic church. I mean, there, there's so much difference in that. So for example, uh, Mexican sp- specifically Catholicism is, is almost unrecognizable to American Catholicism in, in many ways. I mean, if you would go talk to the, you know, um, average Mexican worker, uh, in, in in a village somewhere in central Mexico, you know, their sort of um, ancestry and beliefs uh, uh, before Catholicism came around has been fused with their Catholicism today, right? And, and today, over the last you know, 50 years, now the, a drug culture has also now been attached to the Roman Catholic Church. And, and then all of those things just coexist together. And, and this is called syncretism. It's when things come together and they merge together. And, and the more things come together, the more they're polluted. So it's that much more important for you just to have an honest dialogue about what it is, what is it that you do believe? Because even if you were, even if you were a scholar on all things Catholic, uh, it really wouldn't matter. I mean, you need to, you, you know what you believe, uh, what the scriptures are. You need to figure out what, what, you know, um, what they believe and then really find where are the pressure points here, where, where are the differences between us and these conversations? What are the common denominators? And then start to ask your questions. What are the closed handed and open handed, you know, issues between us in terms of our belief? That's what I would say. Um, at Chick-fil-A, I remember you having a conversation with that guy and there was something that he talked about being pre or post Vatican II. Um, what does that mean? So pre post Vatican II is um, when Vatican II came along, it was a council. Um, and, and I would encourage all of you, I actually wrote this in my notes tonight, but I didn't put that out there. You know, if you want to learn more about the denominations and things, uh, a good church history lesson would be to you to go and, and sort of research um, the councils, I think that would be uh, very useful. As far as pre-post-Vatican, um, I think that uh, basically there was a Latin-only liturgy where the minister would stand at the front and only speak Latin. And if you didn't speak Latin, you were out of luck. What what Vatican came around and said is that ministers and priests can now start speaking 
uh, the vulgar language or the common language, the people's language. Okay. Um, and, and so, and in addition to this, instead of, you know, the minister turning around and putting his back and facing the table, he turned around and faced the people. And so th- some more s- sort of, uh, modernization happened. And of course, people like this individual that we talked to didn't like that. He liked the old traditional stuff. And of course, especially with Francis coming as as liberal and progressive as he is, the the call to go back to the always there's uh, it's actually called the the Catholic Restoration Movement, which is alive and well today. They have an Instagram page that you can go look at as well. Um, but it's it, it's 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 very alive and well. I mean, you can go take a look at it, and uh, they're they're very serious about getting back to those old roots. Other questions? Yep. Um. I have a question, not really about a denomination, but maybe you can place this belief into a denomination. Um, I've only ever heard it really once, um, and haven't really thought more through it. Um, but there's a there's a belief that I heard uh, that actually belonged to a teacher that I had in college, and essentially the belief was that. Uh, throughout the ages, we have continued to be enlightened beyond what uh, Scripture contains. Um, so that person would say things like, hey, in the Bible, there seems to be like an air of, hey, slavery is okay in this way, and we've kind of understood now that like slavery is not okay in any form. And so we've been enlightened through time, uh, beyond what the scriptures hold. Um, I've never heard that like being a foundational property of any denomination before. Um, and I've only really heard it this one time. But Yeah, I can tell you what it's called. It's called liberalism. That's, That's what it's called. Yeah, it's just rampant liberalism. It's always, it doesn't have a denomination. It's just liberal. Um, so, and, and, and the reason it's wrong is because it violates what, Jude, the brother of Jesus, said in his epistle in verse 3, we deliver to you the faith of the saints once and for all. Done. Done. There's nothing added to it, period. Um, In terms of slavery, if I could speak to this. um, And by the way, what what you're referring to is, I mean, in scholarly circles, uh, um, I can't call you by your real name, Toby. Um, Just can't do it. Um, Is... uh, it is called a trajectory hermeneutic, okay? Um, and there's a book by William Webb. It's called, um, oh, what's it called? Women, women, Slaves, and Homosexuals. And, and basically the idea is that, you know, um, there's this trajectory and, uh, you know, where where the Bible condemns something in the Old Testament and the New Testament should still be condemned today. But as, uh, you know, women are liberated in the New Testament from the Old Testament, then we should continue to liberate them today. Um, uh, likewise, slaves are liberated in the New Testament. We should continue to liberate them today, et cetera, et cetera. The Bible does not, I mean, the, the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 15 and 16 uh says to Israel, this is part of their second law, if a slave comes to you and he's run away, we just talked about this on Sunday, ironically, in First Peter chapter 2, that's the reason it's readily, I'm not this smart. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, 
you know, that you would take him into your home, that if he would be a runaway slave and you shall do him no harm, you shall not return him to his master, which actually Paul didn't even do uh, in the case of Philemon and Anisimus, right? So um, the the Bible is very clear uh, that slavery is wrong, right? Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 is a verse actually we didn't talk about on Sunday. There is no uh, male or female, no slave or free, but all are one in Christ, right? Um, the Bible, Jesus or Paul are not looking to overthrow slavery, but they certainly undermine it. Um, uh, they are not looking to overthrow the Roman empire or any of its mechanisms or any of its enterprises. They're, um, they're looking to, uh, establish the kingdom of God. Uh, that, that's what they're looking to do. And they, they did it. Praise God. Yep. I was going to say, um, I've read before, and it might be in other religions other than Mormonism, but I know Mormons say they have um, prophets who continuously receive new revelations, and so it kind of seems like it's been on track that they receive new revelations to fit the current culture. You know, So most Mormonisms would say, um, what's the word, polygamy? You know, at some point, their prophets receive a revelation that we can't do this anymore, even though some traditional ones still do, but I wonder there's other religions, too, that kind of say, well, we have prophets that tell us new revelations, and then, of course, usually fit the culture of today. So. Yes, and it's, it's happening all the time. It's, the, and, you know, it's, it's really, it's what we call, when that happens, when we feel a need to change something because the times are changing, it's called chronological snobbery because it says, so in other words, our time is more important than any other time. That's what chronological snobbery means, right? It means that we're going to be snobs that we're the only people around in all of human history. They didn't have changing cultures too, which is asinine. I mean, that's crazy. Of course they did. But the truth was the truth then, and it's the truth now. And when secular humanism is dead, if it dies, it will be true then too, you know? And that flows out of what we were talking about on Sunday in Revelation, that we're not going to add to the Bible. We're not going to take away from it. Like, what Jesus has said is what he has said, and, like, he has finished revealing that to us, and he's told us not to add to it or subtract from it. And so um, that certainly goes with the case of, you know, we don't need to become more enlightened with with any aspects of Scripture, and we certainly don't need to add to it in regards to how some of these denominations will add to the, the order of salvation and, and what it looks like uh, to— what you need to do to be saved. Um, some of these denominations are adding to that things that scripture clearly doesn't um, mention. And so um, we want to yield to the message of Revelation 22 and be very careful that we're not making the Bible say more than it says or, or make it say less than what it says um, either. So, Any final questions? Where does Seventh-day Adventist fit in that? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, pass? I don't know. Um yeah, they worship on. Uh, they worship on Saturday, Saturday, obviously. Yeah, um, and they have they have a staunch um, uh, view of the law. Uh, Josh, feel free to save me or throw me a life vest <laughs> at any point. Go ahead. So they had their founder was kind of like he was the kind of big on the seventh, switching up the day of worship, and then he met this prophetess named Ellen White who received all kinds of new revelation, and who knows what they believe now, because they, some, some of them like Ellen, some don't, since she's dead, she kind of lost influence in some ways, and they, so it's like most of these things, it's different, you meet a 7 they have this, they could not know who Ellen White is. Right. 
And I, I think that just speaks to the diversity. I mean, there's just so many differences. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, um, Mike Sherrard is a local pastor here across Point Church in Peachtree City. Um, his book that he wrote called Relational Apologetics um, is a great work because it dedicates itself to the idea of defending the faith through your relationships. And the idea of tonight is highlighting the, the, the denominational differences, though we're not, I mean, it's not really apologetics necessarily, is it's really evangelism. So the idea is that we would be gentle and kind. Um, that we would be good listeners. We're actually commanded in scripture to be good listeners. You know, that we'd be slow to speak and slow to anger and um, quick to listen. And when I start talking about my faith, I'm generally none of those things. Does that make sense? Like you know, I get prideful and emotional and um, I'm not level headed. Um, so yeah, I think it's important as we um, look at, look at the differences. Um, it's easy to demonize people that are different than us. It's very instinctive. It's very fleshly. Uh, very, very easy thing to do. So, yeah, and I think too, trying not to convert people from other denominations unless it's a gospel-related issue. Like being okay with the fact that man, we we worship differently because we we think differently about some doctrines, and it's okay to think differently and still be in fellowship with those people. Um, it's it's when the gospel's been distorted that we need to try to um, really contend for the gospel in the life of that individual. And when the gospel's been sorted out, man, they may think differently about the um some of the 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 holy spirit giftings than i do but that doesn't mean that i need to to labor intensively to change their opinion about that contend for the gospel have healthy conversations about some of the others but don't like you said demonize them because of some differences there terry did you have something yeah actually almost exactly what you said whenever i talk to other people i listen carefully for anything that's going to keep my head um anything anything that they say that would be so against the gospel that their salvation would be a question. Mm-hmm. But it's just really good to listen carefully to, for those little red flags. Yeah. And it's so healthy to be around people from other denominations too. Like I, I probably growing up would have been guilty of demonizing somebody from a church of God or an assembly of God church. Now that I work at a school that's attached to a church assembly of God, and I appreciate those guys. I love those guys. And I, and I certainly view that entire denomination differently because I know real people who love Jesus that are a part of that church. And so um, I think it's certainly healthy to have friendships with people from other denominations because I think it gives you an appreciation, like you said earlier, for the overall global church and not just our little pocket church. Tiffany, did you have something? Something that came to mind when um, when y'all were just wrapping up um, that I heard Robbie Zacharias say, um, we were talking about sharing of different um, denominations or faiths um, that you can win an argument for the minute but then lose a, a soul for eternity. So that, I think, just kind of fits with what, you know, we're talking about as far as demonizing someone and, like, really getting passionate about what we believe can totally turn, you know, someone off. So that's just kind of, it stuck with me. I've heard it forever ago, but it's just stuck with me and just seemed really relevant you know, for tonight that we don't have to win an argument when we're trying to win a soul. Yeah. The last thing I'll say, and we'll close, and then if we want to have more discussion, we can, but we can let people leave and need to. Uh, in regards to the non-denominational church, because you don't have the ability to fall back on kind of the historical doctrines of a denomination when you think about that church, it's, it's pretty helpful to kind of look at the lead pastor and kind of where he received his education. Who did he learn under? What school did he go to? Because oftentimes you're going to be able to pick up on 
where does the influence come from in that church? Because it's going to typically come from the lead pastor if it's not attached to a denomination because there's not going to be a denomination that really pushes a, a doctrinal flavor to that church. And so if you don't know and you know it's a non-denominational church and you don't know like what's this church about, start with the lead pastor, kind of find out where he came from, and you're probably going to get a pretty good idea of what, what that church is about. And honestly, the website's probably going to give you a really good feel, too, about what, they're, what they deem important. Um, and, and if you're not seeing a lot of gospel and Jesus on the website, probably should raise some, some red flags as well as to, as to whether or not they may have deviated from really the purpose of the church. So um, just a couple of uh, pieces of, of information there as far as how to maybe sift through good and, and maybe not as good non-denominational churches since you can't fall back on the, the denominational belief. So let me pray for us. I appreciate you coming. appreciate you sharing. I know that was super helpful for me just to even have it consolidated like that. So I appreciate you taking time to be with us. Jesus, we thank you for allowing us to be together tonight. I thank you for your church. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are a part of other denominations, um, the work that you're doing in their life. We certainly never want to presume that we have all the right answers and that all of our beliefs are correct and, and that we have no error in our theology. Um, so God, we pray that you would always give us an increasing appreciation for your global church, the work that you're doing in our church, but also in other churches in this area and churches that, that are around the world that you're working through. Um, God, continue to give us an ability and a passion and a desire to contend for the gospel, whether that's through um, an agnostic, an atheist, whether that's through uh, someone who's a part of the, the Mormon church or um, uh, you know, another type of cultic movement, or whether it's somebody that's a part of a, a church and they just don't understand the gospel. God, give us a heart for people that we live around, that we interact with on a daily basis. Um, God, give us a desire to communicate the gospel graciously. Um, so that souls can be won, souls can be drawn to you for salvation. And uh, God, I pray that you'd use us as a tool uh, to build your church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this evening's discussion. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that is www.sovhope.org.